Bonjour, and welcome to The Naked Scarf. I'm Adam. And I'm Andy. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at City of Death. So, Andy, give us your plot synopsis. Well, Adam est demandé de la faire en français, mais je pense c'est ostentatory. So, I'm just going to talk to you in English instead. Um... I, <laughs> I have no idea what you just said, but carry on. <laughs> uh, basically, um, City of Death, we uh, open with the Doctor and Romana, uh, Tom Baker's Doctor, and they are in Paris uh, in 1979. Yeah, nice. And they're just having a little bit of a holiday, and they are wanting to go to the Louvre and see the Mona Lisa, and um, uh, the doctor's pointing out to Romana, who uh, can't quite understand the attraction of, of going to uh, see, you know, human painted art, because on Gallifrey they have computer art, and then you know it's a good likeness. And or all the rest Photoshop, of it. as we now call it. <laughs> yeah, Photoshop. Yeah, you know, Gallifrey have been manipulating pictures of kittens since before we were born. <laughs> um, uh, you don't understand the the damage the time continuum you can do with a well placed kitten picture. <laughs> Anyway. Threshing reality itself, low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah so, so anyway, where are we? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so they they go and and uh, whilst they're at the um, uh, museum, they find that uh, that they're experiencing some sort of problem with of, uh, time. Like there's there's a sort of rift in time, which they also experienced earlier in a cafe. And um, the doctor manages to steal a woman's bracelet because he realizes that it's uh, actually alien technology. And at some point uh, during this, they also pick up a detective called uh, Duggan. Uh, awful lot of English people uh, who they just happen to be bumping into in France who become major characters um and not really just Duggan I think it's can. implied that the Countess might be English possibly but well she's a Countess like... isn't she Counting Count where uh... So Do we have those? In it? Oh, no, no, we don't. Okay, we no, no. Point, point. Okay, um, but still, yes. Anyway, um, where are we? Basically, the count is an alien. Uh, yeah, yeah. It turns out that. Uh, wait, hang on. I, they don't know who the count is yet. They, they, uh, they, uh, the, the, the uh, countess goes back and tells her husband the uh, count uh, that somebody stole her bracelet, and um, they send some men to find the doctor and Romana and, and bring them back uh, with Duggan now in tow. And um, it turns out the count is an alien, although we only find this out at the end of the first episode. It's the audience and the uh, rest of the non-audience, uh, the, the cast don't actually know this at this point. Oh, God, sound like such a twat. Yeah, non-audience. Oh, I like that. Um, <laughs> non-audience, the cast, those, those are the people. Um, right, yes, so anyway, um, uh, yeah, it turns out that the Count actually has a, a sort of a technology um, in his basement that he's uh, bullying this poor little scientist into uh, sort of advancing, um, uh, and the scientist thinks that he's trying to uh, speed up the growth of uh, livestock so that they they can end famine, uh, but in reality, uh, it's something far more complicated to do with uh, the fact that the Count's an alien um, tried to take off from Earth when uh, life was sort of created uh, 400 million years ago. And um, uh, uh, yes, in the process, uh, unfortunately, his ship blew up and uh, he was split into 12 different 
parts of himself who have been living in various times and they've been using this to perpetuate a, a, a sort of a movement where they've uh, stored all these treasures over the years and then are selling them on um, to fund the work that the uh, scientist is doing. Um, of course, the Doctor and Romana, uh, after inadvertently helping uh, to further uh, this technology and, and help the Count with his uh, cause, actually have to stop that because basically um, the, uh, the ship exploding was what uh, caused uh, sort of uh, amoeba uh, life to be created yeah. um and and Duggan is very funny and this is definitely one of my favorite doctor who stories um and and it's not actually as complicated to watch as it sounds to summarize you make everything sound complicated when you summarize it fuck you Careful, you're dropping an F bomb. Oh, sorry. Hang on. How far in? You're turning the air blue. (laughs) Oh wait, five five minutes in, in and I've dropped an F bomb. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm sure. I'm sure your apology will be accepted. You could. You could have done that all in French, though. I did ask you to do the entire plot synopsis in French. That's okay. I, 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 like I said, that would be very ostentatious and very unhelpful and uh, very potentious. Well, I didn't say pretentious. I said ostentatious. Yeah. But you know, Romana says pretentious in the story, though. So she also says ostentatious. Oh, there we go. So it would, have, it would have fitted in. Maybe you should actually just spend the rest. I of the used podcast... ostentatious on purpose. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Maybe you should spend the rest of the podcast talking in French. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm sure that would be very helpful. Always. Right. So I'm. I'm going to make a statement here. Mm-hmm. I want to see what you think of it. This story is the best use of humour in Doctor Who, yes. old or new. Yes, yes, 100 in case million percent. anyone listening doesn't know, and I always take the, presum- we always take the presumption, and it's one of the reasons we do the, the plot synopsis as badly as we do them, is that you can't presume everyone listening to this has seen every show. So you might not know, I'm presuming you probably do, but you might not, written by Douglas Adams under a pseudonym, but Douglas Adams was editing the programme at the time, and he wrote this. And it's very obvious that he wrote this. Yes, it is. And, um, well, I, I think that many sort of British sci-fi fans, many sci-fi fans just have a great, great love and respect for Douglas Adams. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, it's, it's actually 10 years since he died. I know, and which is amazing. And it's really. very sad as well. And I was thinking, actually, I, I miss Douglas Adams. Yeah. I really miss Douglas Adams because we don't have many people like that, but we need to keep the ones that we do. And there are many public figures who, frankly, if they died, I wouldn't shed a single tear. But the fact that Douglas Adams is dead still upsets me ten years later. He just had such an incredible imagination. And and this is the thing. Uh, this this particular uh, story, despite the fact that um, it was written... Because uh, originally the script that was provided was written by a different writer. Uh, David uh, Fisher. David Fisher, yes. And um, uh, they had to sort of veto the David Fisher story, although uh, many of the elements of it ended up in City of Death in a very pared-down form um, because there was just certain complications, um, they couldn't do it on the budget, etc. And so that's why Douglas Adams had to step in and rewrite a lot of it. And, and and it did very much become a Douglas Adams story. But the way, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very much still based on uh, David Fisher's, uh, uh, you know, um, ideas. The way it's paced, the way it's formulated, it's all relevant, you know, that there's very little... Um, 
of that story where anything's just stuck in there just to, you know, just to fill time or just to, you know, apart from with the possible exception of some of the lovely shots they've got, some of the lovely location shots, but I well, really don't the, the, mind Hitting that. all the major tourist spots in Paris uh, with, with, in the background, which is fair enough because they, they do want to go, look, we're shooting in Paris. Yes, and this was the first the, um, Doctor Who story that was ever actually shot outside of the UK. And yeah, that's right. And actually it kind of sets a template up for, a bit for stories like Ark of Infinity or Two Doctors where there's a scene where they run around recognisable locations to go, look, we've spent some of the budget. It's Amsterdam or it's Spain. Which, you know, I honestly don't mind because, uh, you know, when in a programme like Doctor Who, when you're not looking at another quarry, you know, when you are looking at a beautiful shot of the Champs-Élysées or the, the, the Eiffel Tower or, you know, it's something like that, I really do not mind the occasional, like, nice long location shot just to, just, just it, it just makes a nice change, you but, know? But the thing is about this story, it's actually amazing that it's so good and so well regarded because it was written, rewritten over a weekend and there are so many Doctor Who stories where they had to do major rewrites on the scripts and it fails, and it isn't, you know, they're not well considered. But this manages to transcend that. And they, they were saying, we watched the making of documentary, and they were saying that a lot of the cast helped with the script. I mean, a lot of it is very Douglas Adams, and you can tell if you know his work, but, you know, little phrases were changed and whatnot. They gave the fantastic example of um, of uh, the Doctor, Tom Baker, uh, and he was given the line to say, oh, uh, she's a very beautiful woman about the Countess, and then apparently he then improvised slightly and said, she's a very beautiful woman, probably, which is such a fantastic Doctor line. I have heard people use that, uh, that line as a reason why the Doctor shouldn't be involved in a romantic relationship because he obviously has no concept of uh, beauty. Oh, of course, the, the entire City of Death episode is, is based around the fact that the Doctor obviously has a great appreciation for the fact that people can create beautiful art. I, I know, I'm not, not, I don't agree with it for like, a second. It's but a very I, pretty I painting. I have heard that as an argument. I, I know, I, I know, I, I, I know obviously that's not your point of view, um, but no, I, 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 that's a ridiculous ridiculous justification honestly like you know when um uh, when when he's uh, speaking um to Romana when they've discovered that uh, the, the count has uh, six identical Mona Lisa originals all painted by Leonardo da Vinci and uh, and uh, I think it's Duggan or Romana who says oh why would they want six and and uh, Tom Baker as doctor is going oh, it's a very pretty painting you know and um yeah and and his argument is actually it doesn't matter if, if there's one in the world it, it doesn't matter who painted it at the end of the day it's, it's a beautiful piece of art that people enjoy looking at, you know, and uh, and yeah, it's, it's uh, a doctor clearly has a, a very good conception of beauty because at the end of the day, he's the only one who really had his eye on that after all yeah. was said and done. Yeah, I agree completely. There have been attempts since, particularly in the new series, I think, to try and recapture bits of Douglas Adam humour, like in the Unicorn and the Wasp, for example, which is yeah. written by Gareth Roberts, which is interesting because Gareth Roberts in the mid 90s for the Virgin Missing Adventure range wrote three very good books set during series 17 if I get this right now The Romance of Crying The English Way of Death and The Well-Mannered War and they're very much in the Douglas Adams spirit and they're very good because the thing about series 17 to do a quick overview I mean I don't think a lot of it works I Mm. think you know I mean I like I like Tom Baker I like Romana too yes but it does. It doesn't. City of Death works. I don't. I couldn't really look honestly say the rest of it does. So I mean, what I think Gareth Roberts writes in his in the, these missing adventures is almost an idealized version of what Series Seventeen should have been, which is basically City of Death, but that kind of humor transplanted into other settings. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair enough argument to make. 
no, I, I think the City of Death actually works on practically every level. You know, they've got a fantastic location with some really beautiful shots. They have, uh, and, and, and something you said as well, is, is that um, uh, uh, Classic Who uh, arguably has not played so much with the timey-wimey element of things as, as mm. the new rebooted series um, but this is there's there's some real indications of timey wiminess going on here because uh, of the character of the count who has um uh, 12 of him you know he's he's, he's uh, become divided but connected psychically and he has 12 of him scattered at various points of time and the fact that uh, he's he's um managing to communicate with uh, all his various counterparts. He's got one in ancient Egypt. He's got one in Renaissance Italy. He's got one in, in Paris in 1979. Um, you know, uh, uh, various different uh, things. And, and uh, he's, he's using uh, the fact that he's got these... Um, uh, different connections through time to his advantage you know that, that that's actually the start of a slightly more complicated yeah. you know slightly, yeah um so yes it, it's it's sort of it doesn't overly tax the brain but it's more intelligent than a lot of um uh, uh doctor who uh stories of the era um it's you know it's i i like you said i do love the uh tom baker is my favorite doctor and i love romana you know I think that she is obviously incredibly intelligent in her own right. Uh, she doesn't have uh, the sort of same, I don't want to say humanness, but perhaps the same perspective uh, as, as the Doctor, but I think they're a very good foil for each other, and I love their banter, and I love their very evident chemistry, which, you know, of, of course, we all know what happened with uh, Tom Baker and Lala Ward. So, um, uh, But I just like the fact that a flicker of that is quite obviously there on the screen, despite what, you know, some people might say about the doctor not being able to have a girlfriend do, do, do you think in uh, purely from a fan uh perspective do, do you think that they had the doctor and romana too had a relationship or is that just reading a bit too much of uh, tom baker and Lala ward's own uh personal life into the series that's a good question um and it's interesting because you know if, if you had fast forwarded uh this story those characters uh to 2005 or whatever then then we would know from the outset you know i um i do potentially think that they may well have but of course wouldn't really do to suggest that sort of thing you know on on a kids uh, television show uh kids you know inverted commas at the time sorry do you remember in that when we did Horror Fang Rock? Yeah. And I said that if the uh, Doctor and Leela turned up, you were a bit screwed because neither of them would necessarily be particularly sympathetic to you. Yeah. I think this does continue a little bit with the Doctor and Romana because Romana isn't, it, it obviously isn't Leela. She's not a savage. She's far more civilised and um, more intelligent in, in, to, a certain, uh, to an extent. But they're not, neither of them are human. Yes. And they both have that slight detachment. Not they don't care, but, you know, ultimately they are not human. Now, I think their pairing works particularly well in this story because of Duggan, the detective. Yes. Because he's very human. And and he's one of these characters... I, I have a bit of a thing about... I In a lot of uh, drama in general, I don't particularly like comedy characters. Characters no, who come on and just, like, fall over and twat about and, yeah, just don't work. Because I, I find them pointless and irritating and slightly insulting as a viewer normally. Indeed. But for me, Duggan works because he's such a nice contrast to the two of them. 
these great think the Doctor Roman, these great thinkers, and and Duggan is literally punching everything, breaking everything, and it's like it's like the way he opens a bottle of wine by smashing the top off and pouring it. Yeah, brilliant. He doesn't need to do that, but it's such a perfect summary of and his character. And it also gives Romana some fantastic lines. They do work to be well able together. To yeah, put him down. Yes, um, and no, it, like like you say, I I really dislike deliberately stupid characters. And and whilst he's not entirely stupid, you know, he's mostly stupid. And and you're right, that kind of slapstick comedy would usually grate me the it rubbed me up the wrong way. But uh, in the context of the story, I think it works very nicely. Yeah. You he's, know, he's stupid because he's completely out of his depth. Yes. As most people would be in that situation where you find yourself surrounded by aliens and time travel. Yes. Also, he's got two incredibly intelligent foils, mm. good foils, and, and then, you know, um, another incredibly intelligent bad one. Um, so it, it feels like, you know, um, it, if, if it were just the Doctor, perhaps, with him blundering along beside him, perhaps that would be more irritating. Yeah. But because, uh, you know, there are so many sort of intelligent characters in the story, uh, perhaps, you know, it, it sort of works a little better he can get away with being that much more slapstick and farcical saying that um you know the the doctor has some uh, a good sort of uh, uh, more jokey uh sort of lines and they're always underpinned with a lot more seriousness though you know well, there's very much the thing of you get the feeling when his doctor's being stupid he's being yes. stupid to fool people and find out more like that there's... that perfect scene in is, is it episode two where he yes. first meets the uh, where he first meets the, the count, count. Is that episode two or episode one? Oh, episode two, episode two. Yeah. And that, that where we, as we mentioned earlier, the line, you're a beautiful woman, probably, comes across. And then there's a great line the Countess has, which is, my dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. And the Count goes, my dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. Yes. And it, that is possibly a perfect scene, because it looks comical on the surface, but there's so much going on underneath there. You know, they're trying to find things out about each other and just... just you find out little bits about the characters in subtle ways. Talking of the, now you mentioned the Count, Julian Glover is, is great as a as, as scout yes. in this. He's so, he's possibly the most sing, singular, most suave Doctor Who villain of all time. Even, even the master in the Roger Delgado era was not as suave as this guy in his wonderful white 70s suit. With big yes, there's, there's certainly that. But you also have to remember that this man has lived through the uh, evolution of life on Earth as somebody rich and powerful and manipulative who's been pushing along the uh, evolution of, of this, you know, puny little species uh, to his own ends. Um, yeah, and, and he does do very well at conveying that sort of power without yeah. without coming across as, as ridiculous or megalomaniacal. He just has his, his, his one uh, end, you know, he, his end game is, is that he wants to go back in time and uh, to the point where just before his ship exploded so he can uh, warn himself not to uh, go back and and um uh, yeah it's it's uh, it's it's fantastic it's um it, you know it's it's more interesting to have a machiavellian character i feel than a megalomaniacal character and also he has a genuine motivation as a yes. villain it's not just i want to take over earth i want <laughs> to rule the human race it's i want to save my own people i want to save myself he yeah. doesn't want it to be because it's a really interesting idea. And it's not explored that much, but the idea because we, even though he split the twelve parts across time, we only meet one other back in the Renaissance. Yeah, and then only kind of fairly briefly. And I suppose that, again, that's partly because of budgetary uh, concerns. You know, we get very brief flashes of his other cell, other other cells that we don't see. But this idea of one man split across twelve times, I, I find that a really fascinating yes. idea and it, almost worthy of more ex- exploration. Yeah, it's a genuine motivation. He's not just twirling his moustache. 
Yeah. But he does an awesome silk robe as well. He really does. He's literally oh. the most, see, that's what I mean, the most sophisticated suave villain. He, he holds the Doctor at gunpoint while wearing a, a fucking sweet silk robe. Oh, yes, that's there's cool. that. But then at the same time, and as I said to Adam, I'm determined to make this bit into an animated gif one day. My favourite thing about this episode and potentially... Doctor Who in general is that great little bit just at the end of the first episode where you know the Count has gone downstairs and locked himself in his, his little laboratory and he's looking in a mirror with his like suave suave face and his, his you know nice quiff and, and his suit and all the rest of it and then he reaches up and there's just a flash of a mask a human mask being ripped off this big tentacly alien head with the eye in the middle and oh god I mean you know you, you know the way that at the you know, for the for the time and for the budget and all the rest of it, it, it you know, it was really the best that they sort of, you know, could come up with, you know, just for the money and, and all the rest of it. Are you aware you've just said you know about five, six times one sentence? Okay, okay. Ooh. It's because they do know. No. Yeah, and, exactly. So, what but you're... yeah, it's it's just fantastic. You know, it's, it's really crap. Like, you know, it's an actual human face and it's a mask. Then, oh my God, it's an alien. And yeah, it's it's such a fantastic looking alien as well. Is is uh, I mean, it is coming from like you say, series seventeen, an era where the uh, monsters um, did get a little bit rubbish, low budget. Yeah. Yes, um, but I I actually really like that in this particular episode, especially because you know they don't overdo it. I th I think that that's just done in the first episode to introduce the fact that the count isn't actually human, and then he doesn't turn up again in its alien form until sort of more towards the end of the yeah, last I think, episode. I think it is in the last episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you making a controversial suggestion that out of all the classic rubber mask moments in Dot 2, this is the best rubber this mask moment? This is my favourite rubber mask moment in Doctor Who. That'll split the internet. <laughs> what about all the great Roger Delgado master moments? I mean, you do wonder, because he must have some kind of infinite supply or something. It's one of these things that's never really explained, how, yeah. like, throughout 12 different time zones, he's able to have the make the same mask and just keep because he doesn't take it off he rips it off yeah he rips it off and also the fact that he's married to rather a hot young thing and you know obviously uh, he's he's got a human body I mean does he fit all his tentacleness and also the fact that his alien head is about twice the size as his human head is, is it like you know when you see someone with a really massive afro and you often wonder about how they'd actually fit that under a wig oh. it's, it's kind of the same thing oh god rule 34 do you think if we looked for Doctor slash fiction we'd find an explanation of how that relationship worked I would like to think that the inside of his head works in a similar fashion to the TARDIS, or the inside of his mask. Yeah, that wasn't what you talked about, his head. Well, I was just the distracting the conversation shoulders. from Rule 34. Oh, okay, moving swiftly on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Crap, crap story title, though. City of Death is up there with uh, Deadly Assassin and Robots of Death, as you weren't really trying that day, were you, with the, with the whole <laughs> titles? It's a bit like, right, okay. Because it's not like Paris comes alive and tries to eat anyone. No, that's it. And in fact, uh, Paris, it's its very much the location, it's very much the backdrop, but, you know, it's, it's its not intrinsically to do with the city. In all fairness, they could have taken the story and transported it to any, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, major sort of city. I, suppose they'd have, I mean, obviously they couldn't have then really included the Mona Lisa, but that the Mona oh, Lisa... Get, they could have uh, substituted it for any yeah, sort yeah, of painting, some, some, you know? Something else. I mean, calling this city of death is a bit like calling a uh, Patrick Troughton one military base of death or <laughs> scientific base of death. Unit of death. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's like there's some. It's a city. Is it? There is a city in it, and somebody just die. A couple of people die, but. 
but the people who die, for the most part, you don't really care about that much. There's the misguided scientist. Who does his little dance of death yeah, in, in the bubble. Yeah, dance of death. That's what it should have been called. It, dance it, of death. That would have been much better. Because when we were watching it, you looked and you went, it's like he's at a nerd disco. Yes. That word. <laughs> it does. It looks like you've taken the most socially, you know, awkward person ever and, and given them drugs and stuck them in the middle of a school disco and, and, and you know, you're just watching them getting freaky, you know, and that's a bit what he was doing. Professor Korinsky. Professor Krinsky. Think of the name for a second, but yeah. That's it. Excellent, you know, sort of uh, Slavic name there. Obviously, that you know. Interesting accent. Interesting accent. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the hell was going on there, but uh, yeah, it's it's the fact actually, as as the doctor said to him that uh, he was talking about where he got his money from, the count and the funding, and a very expensive project. But you know, I don't ask too many questions about where the money comes from. The doctor says you're a scientist; you're supposed to ask questions, and I was a bit like. Yeah, this dude has you locked up in his laboratory, pretty much, you know, not even really sleeping that much, working like on this technology. And, uh, and, and, yet, uh, and he just, you know, you ask for a, a million and, and he just like chucks it your way. And uh, wouldn't you sort of perhaps question where the hell this money was coming from? Saying that I'm not a scientist. So if any scientist wants to tell me, Dave... Tech support Tech day, support. tell us what scientists are like. <laughs> uh, good Douglas, uh, Douglas, God, no, sorry, getting confused. Good Dudley Simpson score, because uh, I, I, his later work always sounds a bit samey, but that really, the, the little kind of piano motif he's got going on there, the... Yeah. Best uh, cameos in uh, uh, Doctor Who. Uh, oh, John Cleese and John Eleanor Braun. Cleese and Eleanor Braun, yeah. Um, which is fantastic because it's not explained. It's not a big part of the story. They it, just pop up. You could cut the scene out and it wouldn't lose anything. It wouldn't, story, but, but it's it, so, such a joy to have it in there just uh, because, you know, and it's, it's a very funny little scene as well. It feels right in this, epi- in this story as it well. It does. Because it... The humour in this is so funny, it's as funny as something that John Cleese should be in, if you know what I mean. Yes. It's not like he turned up in Destiny. No, it the does feel a little bit like a sketch from a, a, a Monty Python show or something, like, you know, mm. the, the two, you know, um, uh, sort art of critics. art critics, yeah, who um, are talking about the fantasticness of, of the TARDIS as a piece of modern art. And as it disappears in front of them, like, you know, the Doctor and, and Romana and uh, Duggan all run past into the TARDIS and it disappears in front of them. And rather than being perturbed by it, it, um uh the lady just goes exquisite exquisite <laughs> like it was just yeah okay because um thinking of costume randomly uh i'm sure i've read something where lala ward said that she wore the schoolgirl costume instantly and then was got a lot of letters from dads going how much they liked it yes i so think that a she more was, innocent time i think that she was uh supposed to be wearing a, a silver cat suit or something and she uh, nala ward said uh oh it, it didn't quite feel right you know for for the part and and you know they're on holiday and it's it was just a bit too auspicious for like you know running around the streets of paris which is probably entirely correct there and so uh yeah came up with the schoolgirl outfit in all fairness you know um yeah perhaps more innocent times but uh uh, she's she's clearly a grown woman, 
wearing a schoolgirl's uniform, which perhaps probably might have attracted a fair amount of attention in its own right. Do you have anything else? I mean, would you say this is your favourite Doctor Who story? Yes, I'd say it's my favourite Doctor Who story. In fact, old and this, new, out of old and new, not out of old and new. Blink is my favourite new one, um, and in fact, uh, uh, City of Death is a favourite of uh, Stephen Moffat. Um, Favourite of a lot of people, to be fair. Yes. Like, it's one of these ones that usually ends up in top ten lists. Yeah, definitely. If, if and, and deservedly so. And uh, actually, um, the, the reason we're doing City of Death right now is because after we did the uh, TV movie, Adam had to promise me City of Death to placate me um, because I hated the movie so much. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I've got my City of Death. I feel much happier now if I've watched, you know, um, Tom Baker and Lala Ward gamble around Paris and, and you know, have a lovely time. And, and you know what? It does feel a little bit like you do kind of get whisked away with them in a sort of weird yeah. way, doesn't it? Yeah, it does a little bit. Because I remember when we watched it, watched this today, and I was like, I'm actually really... I mean, I always look forward to watching Who, but I was like, this would be really relaxing to watch this one. Yeah. You know, this would be a really gentle nice experience uh, which is old because it's like I, said, I enjoy it's definitely a favorite I, I it's not my personal all-time favorite but i mean i would say that it is the wittiest doctor who story ever yes i mean because i know i said that sometimes they've tried to recapture that humor in the new series but i don't think they've ever really managed there have been some funny episodes they've never quite caught this level of sophistication because the thing is as much as uh, some people don't like humor in doctor who and I can understand why. I mean, there's been other humor stories like the Romans and the gunfighters that yes. tend to be a bit um, divide opinion. Yeah. But for me, I, one thing I will say is that humor is so good, genuinely good humor is so much harder to write than horror. It really so is. So much harder. And, and that's why we miss Douglas Adams because yeah. he was such a natural at it, you know? But also. It came he, through just about everything he did. The lovely thing about Douglas Adams was at heart, he was a sci fi writer, science yes. fiction writer. Definitely. He wasn't like. A comedy writer putting a bit of science fiction in there. You read Hitchhikers or even this or Pirate Planet. If you watch Pirate Planet, there are so many ideas, which is what science fiction is all about. It's, it's a taking and exploring ideas, and this is and his work is full of them. Yeah, and that's why you know. But he can do it with humour in a way that appeals to so many more people than just straight, just straight science fiction. And yeah. I, I think, yeah, we, 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 we miss. He is missed. He's missed so much. I'm I'm quite sad that there was no towel cameo. I, I would have just like cheered if I could see a towel fluttering from the top of the Eiffel Tower or something in this. Actually, because the, the guard in Renaissance Italy reminded me a bit of one the, the Vogon guard. <laughs> you, you know the one yes. where, when Arthur when they're trying to persuade the Vogon guard not to throw them out the airlock and, and the, the doctor and the, the conversation the doctor has with the uh, Rena, Renaissance guard is it's kind of similar and like the guards are like oh, I'm, I'm not paid to notice. Yeah, I'm not paid to ask questions. So that's quite a standard Douglas Adams thing, the henchman. Um, have you got anything to add? No, I... just that I, I I think it's a brilliant episode. I love Tom Baker. I love Lala Ward. I love Douglas Adams. It's, it's I love Paris. It's it's pretty much uh, uh, you know perfect quintet, not quartet. Quintet. Well, what's my fifth thing there? Oh yeah, it's Doctor Who. No, um, it's, it's it's a perfect quartet for me, really. It's um, yeah, strong performances, great dialogue, uh, good plot that you know is is sustained throughout rather than being loads and loads of filler and then resolution at the end. And uh, I I just think that it's it's a, a real standout um, serial. Excellent. Well, a uh, couple of Orders of business, as it were. 
first off, I'm working on, on a promo for The Naked Scarf so that all you lovely people or you podcasters can maybe, if you're really nice and you really like us, can put it on there and maybe more people come and listen to us and feed our egos. Uh, or if maybe you've got a website, you could put it on. That would be, be lovely. But uh, what we're doing for this promo is I want, instead of just like getting some music and putting some clips of us being obviously hilarious and witty on it. Or dropping be- F-bombs. Because, yeah, because I can't find too many of those clips. Um, I'd like you, yes, you, our low listeners, to get involved. So if what you could do, if you could record an MP3 of yourself answering the question, you should listen to The Naked Scarf because, and keep it relatively short, say 20 words or, or less, and, and send it in to me, and when I get enough, I'm going to make a promo. Uh, actually, we've already got one. We got one from the Adam of the 20 Megabyte.2 podcast. Shall, shall, shall we play it? Give people an idea what to do? Sure. Uh, sure, okay. I think people should listen to the Naked Scarf podcast. I can't think of a reason. Alicia, do you think, can you think of any reasons why people should listen to the Naked Scarf podcast? What? I don't listen to it. Well, I think Andy's got a very, very sexy voice. I suppose that's a good reason, though. Yes, I think you should listen to the Naked Scarf podcast because of Andy's voice. So that's the kind of thing we want, basically. Uh, feel free to talk about how sexy I am as well. That, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, funnily for enough. Once, for once, I'd like to get some of the attention. <laughs> but anyway, if you want to do that, that would be much appreciated. If you don't, it's okay. Won't be taken personally. I'm going to get Lauren to record one especially for you. Uh, anyway, to, the best place to send this to would be nakedscarf at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at nakedscarf. Uh, we have a Tumblr, which is nakedscarf.tumblr.com. That's all our contact details, isn't it? I always get this bit mixed up. Yeah, we also have a Facebook group and bits, oh, yes. but you can find that if you uh, uh, go onto Facebook and you search for Naked Scarf. Yeah. And Logically enough. So, uh, next episode, we're going to be looking at The Deadly Assassin, another wonderfully titled uh, story. And also, something we should have mentioned in our TV movie episode when we were talking about Dot Two Stories that feature narration, as, <laughs> a, as a lot of people have pointed out to me since. Yes, no, literally after like uh, Adam started editing the podcast and he was like, Deadly Assassin, shit. (laughs) Can can we edit in? No, let's not bother. Let's let's keep it real. Keep it real. (laughs) Yeah, this is us being real stupid. (laughs) Real stupid. Oh dear. Us and our nominal knowledge of the show, eh? (laughs) No, that's me and my nominal knowledge of the show, you massive nerd. Anyway, we've had enough time turning the air blue. Uh, (laughs) So, take care, folks. (laughs) 